I'm excited about the single service Sunday next week. I know it'll be a, a great time to be together as one church family and be able to um, sing together as one loud body. And we're going to put extra chairs in the auditorium, so don't worry about that. We'll all fit. We'll make it fit. And uh, we'll just have a good time of worshiping the Lord together. I'm going to start a new series today on the suffering servant. Actually, it's the songs of the suffering servants. And if you were to do a deep study of the book of Isaiah, you would uh, realize at the end of Isaiah, chapter 41, 42, 43, up to 53, and even uh, up to 59, there are songs of the servant, the Messiah who would come. These songs are sung before the congregation. So we're going to study each one of those songs as we study the person of Jesus Christ. It's important because this is why we're here. This is what unifies us. This is the one central theme that brings us all together at 9 o'clock on a Sunday. It is the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came to this earth to pay the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. And so... The greatest study that we can do as a body is to study our Savior. And so we're going to spend six weeks and just study our Savior week after week. And uh, I'm always nervous about studies like this because I feel like it can become redundant as we kind of study the same topic each week. And yet this is the greatest topic to study. And there is so much I could probably preach an entire year on the work of Jesus Christ and not repeat myself uh, I mean, obviously, I would be repeating myself, but uh, we would be able to study different aspects of the Savior. And so today we're going to do a general overview from the book of Hebrews. So go to Hebrews chapter 2 with me, and we'll study just uh, five verses on the great servant. And really, this is what Hebrews is. It's an overview of Jesus as the Messiah as he writes to a bunch of Jewish, i.e. Hebrew, believers. And so the purpose of the book of, the, uh, of Hebrews is to present to the readers, especially Hebrew readers, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he is superior to all. And if there was one phrase that I would want to pop into your mind every time you hear the book Hebrews, it would be the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is superior to all. In fact, the author of Hebrews walks through very systematically walks through uh, the superiority of Jesus as the Messiah over all things. He's superior to all things. He's superior uh, over the prophets. He's superior over Moses. He's superior, uh, superior over the law. He's superior over angels. He's superior over the priesthood. So that every reader can at the end of the book of Hebrews stand and, and know with certainty how glorious their Savior is. And so throughout the book, there's, there's great statements of grandeur and strong claims of authority concerning Jesus the Christ. And as I said, the book is written to believers, and it's written for the purpose of fortifying their faith, strengthening their faith. And here's why. The Jewish believers of the first century have centuries of tradition that they grew up with. 
And tradition isn't, isn't always right. And so sometimes their thinking is skewed. For instance, the, the main thing we're going to focus on is the sacrifice of the Savior. And they're ingrained in their lives and in their, their, their very thinking is the, the sacrificial system. And yet, the author of Hebrews is going to prove that the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, the Savior, is far superior to all the sacrifices that the Jewish system could even offer. And so he's strengthening their faith as he walks through this. Jesus Christ is heralded as the one true Messiah, and it should leave the, the readers with no hesitation about how they're to live out their faith because of the one who has done everything for them. And so we're going to start, just two points, but we're going to start by looking at Jesus, the great deliverer. And if you would, read with me. We'll read these five verses. They're, they're meaty verses. They're not easy or short. Verse 14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, that's mankind. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made in, like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the world. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And so we, we see in the first three verses that we read, verse 14, 15, and 16 of, of Hebrews 2, that Jesus is the great deliverer. And as the deliverer, he did some things that were uh, maybe not expected, certainly not expected by the, the Jews, the Hebrews, but, but also maybe not expected by us. If you or I were to come up with a plan to redeem the world of their sins, this wouldn't be the plan. And it wouldn't be the plan because we're insufficient sinners and our, our ideas are, are rather poor, especially when compared to the creator of the world. He alone knew how to redeem the world. He alone knew what sacrifice would suffice. And, and just to prove that point, all you have to do is look at man's religions. All the religions of mankind comes up with ways to try and balance the scales of humanity where, where the good can kind of outweigh the bad. So the world's system of redemption is be good enough for God. Make yourself acceptable for God. You, you can go and pray, and, and that will help kind of outweigh some of the bad things you do. You do good works. You, you show kindness to the world around you. And eventually, if you do enough of those things, you follow the, the Ten Commandments or the rules of religion, that maybe then God will overlook your sin because you've, you've done enough for God. That's mankind's view of salvation. And it, it fails miserably. Because if we're going to be honest, we know that every one of us are horribly deplorable. In the recesses of our mind, we know our sins better than anyone else. Some of us are quite crafty at hiding our sins, others not so much. It doesn't matter, though. 
we're worthless. And we can never be good enough for God. That's why we need a deliverer. And so Jesus Christ is that deliverer. But he does it in a way that's unusual. God comes to earth to be a man, to live amongst us, to pay the sacrifice for our sins. And so we see in verse 14 that he became a man. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. So he shares humanity. God comes to earth and he becomes a man and he lives and he, and he experiences hunger and he experiences sleep deprivation and he experiences the needs of humanity all the while remaining God. And he does that so that he can relate with you and I. He does that so he can come to the level that we are and bring us up. Now I'm not saying he became a sinner. The Bible's really clear about that. He never sinned. And yet he experienced all the turmoil of this sinful world and the pain and the suffering. He shared in the sufferings of mankind. He emptied himself, meaning he left his throne to walk among sinners, suffer among sinners, and die among sinners. And so Andy read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which just beautifully lays out the humility of Christ in coming to the earth. He made himself lowly he made himself of no reputation he was a nobody god the creator of the world became a nobody for you and for me just some man that grew up in nazareth as far as we know he became a servant in fact the lord became the slave he became a slave to the sacrifice that God needed. He, he became a slave in that he chose to go to the cross. And of course, he did it in humility. He humbled himself. He took upon flesh. He hid his glory and majesty and power to be the man of God who would take away the sins of the world. That's not something that we would probably come up with. We would never think that God would, ha would, would have to or be willing to sacrifice himself for us. And yet he did. And he dies for mankind. Verse 14. He, he took, partook of flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And so he died for mankind. God alone could make the sacrifice for sinners. As, as the one who shared flesh with sinners, he offered himself. And as one who shared godhood, he could pay the penalty for our sins. And so God alone is worthy to offer himself or, or a worthy enough sacrifice to offer himself for the penalty of sin and death. You know, the Old Testament is replete with information that the death of the animal sacrifices was insufficient. Right? Every time someone sinned, they were required to go to the temple or tabernacle and offer a, a, the blood of a lamb without blemish as a symbol of atonement for their sin. And they would have to go day after day, year after year, because their sins just pile up. And so the, the blood of bulls and goats were not enough. And that was the point. 
The whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system was not to atone for sin, but to highlight that they need atonement for their sin. And so we get incredible passages in the New Testament, like Hebrews 10.4, for it is not possible. In other words, it is impossible. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. God requires a perfect sacrifice. And there was only one. Himself. And so he offered himself. And he did it to destroy sin and death. The end of verse 14 is a wonderful truth. It says that through death, in other words, through his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So he not only destroys the, the ability to spiritually condemn people to hell for eternity, he destroys or defeats the one who has the power over death. That is the devil. God alone controls the power and rights of life and death. And he proved that. And this wasn't, a, this wasn't an epic battle. This was not uh, right Christ barely winning and barely defeating Satan. He absolutely, mercilessly destroyed Satan's sin and death. And we know that not... And listen, we know we all die physically. Death is the unstoppable thing of this world, and it's because of our sin that we die physically. But it's because of redemption in Christ that we can live spiritually for eternity. And so we have Satan here presented as this, this enemy of God, this accuser of God. And we know that. Job chapter 1 Satan comes before God in heaven, okay? Think about that, because our theology sometimes is wrong. Satan goes to heaven and stands before God, and God asks him, where are you? What have you been doing? Not because he doesn't know, but because he's about to give account to Satan. And Satan says, I've been walking to and fro among mankind. And what does he do then? He proceeds to accuse Job. Revelation chapter 10, verse or 12, verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, that's Satan, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Christ defeated sin and death. He defeated Satan. Not by dying on the cross, but by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. He rose victorious. And so his accusations, now let's make this applicable for you and I, his accusations, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then the accusations of Satan have no bearing on your life. And here's what it means for Satan to be an accuser. It means he will go before God and he will name your name. He will say that you are a filthy, rotten sinner and you deserve punishment and you deserve retribution for your sins and, and you have you, you failed again. He reminds God that you are a failure. And it's absolutely true. And yet, we have a 
a, a great advocate in heaven. And whenever Satan accuses uh, you before God, Jesus Christ steps forward and says, paid in full. Every time. But what about this? Daniel did this and Daniel did that. Paid in full. In other words, there is absolutely no accusation of my life that can stick before God. Not because of anything I have done, but because of the righteous actions of Jesus Christ. Now, there's an implication here for you, too. Because Satan accuses you. Your own conscience accuses you. And sometimes we sin and we falter and we fail. And, and rightfully so, we recognize our failure and our sin. And then Satan loves to come in and whisper, see, that's why you're never in my presence. See, that's why you can't serve me. You did it again, Daniel. There you did it. I knew you'd do it. You knew you'd do it. And Satan loves, I'm not saying Satan sits on our shoulder and leans up, but that's not the idea. But Satan loves to accuse us of our own unworthiness. And you know what should happen in that moment? Jesus Christ should step forward in our mind and we should hear him say, paid in full. But frankly, many of us live with these accusations freely bombarding our minds. Now listen, I am not saying that when you sin, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. It does matter. Because your fellowship with God is hurt. Your walk with Christ is hurt. And you need to get that right. But Satan should have no control, no dominion in your life anymore. Because Christ has paid in full all of your sin debt. Satan has no authority over a believer. Unless, uh, of course, unless we relinquish him completely. And we in our sin continue in our sin. And we give him access and sway into our lives and we give him to temptation. And we give him power when we listen to his accusations and succumb to the temptations before us. But the truth is no rebuttal is needed. There's no need to argue. I'm going to pull a verse out of context. I know I'm doing it. It's not wrong, though. But it's wrong to pull them out of context, so I'm going to do it anyways. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be unwise. Can I tell you, don't answer the foolish accusations of Satan, lest you also be unwise. Okay, so it's written to believers about sinful people and fools. But let me tell you, Satan is a fool. He's a a declared enemy of God, therefore he is a fool. And don't listen to his accusations and don't listen to his lies. Jesus overcame temptation in, in Matthew 4 by quoting scripture. He didn't argue with Satan. He simply stated the truth of God and Satan fled. And so we have Jesus Christ, this advocate, our legal representative. And let me tell you, he's never lost a case. So when the accusations against us rise before God, Jesus Christ steps forward and wins every time. That's the Jesus that we need to study. 
1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's our advocate. Do you view him that way? I'm not saying you need to get out of jail free card. Please understand me. I'm not saying that when you sin, you just simply go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you paid for that. Now I'm going to go back and do it again. He's not a free ticket. He's the Savior of the world. The only one who is worthy of glory and honor. The name that at, at his very name, eventually, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And he fights for you. And he fights for me. And so Jesus defeated death. This is, a, this is a, an incredible statement. He defeats death here at the end of verse 14. He killed death when he rose from the grave. First, first Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55 and 56. Great verse. Oh, death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But of course, glory be to Christ who overcomes. And Romans 6, 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of Christ's resurrection. In fact, it reminds me of the fourth verse of the power of the cross, the great hymn that we sing. The verse reads, Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven by Christ. I love that line. Death is crushed to death. The very prophecy from Genesis 3, 16, 15. That, that God would crush the serpent's head. That's the power that Jesus Christ has. That's the power of his sacrifice. He delivers us from death. Not only death, verse 15, notice, he delivers us from the fear of death and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Isn't it amazing? The one thing that happens to every one of us is death. It will happen. We've seen it happen with others. It's coming. We feel it coming. We're reminded constantly that death is coming. And yet Christ didn't just defeat eternal death and damnation and hell. He defeats the fear of, of that impending death. Or he should, as a believer, we should recognize that those who are found in Christ need not fear Satan, need not fear death. It's not an unknown. We know from Scripture what's going to happen. 
and Christ is the victor. He doesn't just win, though. He's already won. And that should be a reassuring truth. Let me tell you, I'm not going to get into the story. Many of you know that there was a point in my life where I was was certain I should have died. I should have died. I really should have. And I was literally seconds away from dying. And I'm going to tell you with 100% honesty, in that moment, I was excited. I was not afraid. I, I literally, in my mind, said, in the next 30 seconds, I'm going to see Jesus. And I was excited about it. That's not natural, right? That's not normal. That comes because of the assurance of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that's the only way it comes. There's no reason to fear death when we know the one who crushed death. And so the fear of unknown powers of sin and powers of death have no hold on us. We may feel feel fearful, but let's be honest, feelings are a horrible guide in life. Horrible. And yet most people, that's their primary guide. The truth tells us, though, that God is the victor. When fear enslaves people and holds them captive, we should remember that the redeemed one, me and you, the one, those who are redeemed, no longer have a master called death. Verse 16 begins a really important transition for us. It says, for indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. For indeed, this word indeed, or verily, or surely, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. Now that word is translated, you, you read that word through scripture, right? Jesus says verily, verily, or things like that. But the actual Greek word that's being used here is a really unusual word. It means to take hold or grasp by the hand. It's a very, very technical word, to grasp by the hand. Just like you would take a small child and you would take them by the hand to gently lead them somewhere that they need to go. In the same way, Jesus Christ has come. Indeed, verily, surely, he has taken hold of us and he has led us to safety. Christ didn't take hold of angels. He didn't provide redemption to angels, and there were fallen angels. He didn't provide them redemption. He didn't become an angel. He became a man. Because he created man to be in his own image. They were the image bearers of God. We are the image bearers of God. And so he took hold of us with a purpose of removing us from the bondage of sin and death and setting us free for his glory. Think of it this way. He went to the, to the slave block where we are sold in our sin to slavery and he paid the price and removed us from there. That's what Christ did for you and I. That's what he did when he died on the cross. He freed us from the bondage of sin. It also means he freed us from the bondage of the flesh. Verse 16, indeed he does not give aid to aid to angels, that word is used multiple times here, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, to the followers 
of, of Abraham, the followers of God, those who came because of Abraham. This would be a term for mankind. For those who, who are made in God's image, who are following, in this case, following God. And so sin constantly beckons us back to a life of slavery, but there is no legal claim there because Christ paid in full our debt and led us away from that life. And so we're given a new spirit. We're made new creatures. We are forever free from the slavery of sin. We are commanded to put sin to death or consider sin dead to us. Powerless. Christ killed sin and death. And so the ramifications of that are important in verse 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things he had to be made, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, godly things, to make propitiation for the sins of the world, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid or succor those who are tempted. And so we have Jesus here, not just as the Savior, but the high priest. And this alludes back to what I mentioned earlier, the advocate. Christ had to die for sinners, but in doing that, he became sympathetic to mankind. By becoming a man, taking flesh upon him, and suffering the way you suffer, and being tempted the way you are tempted, yet without sin, by doing that, by experiencing the pain of this world, and the torment of this world, he understands you. And he understands your needs. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that he understands suffering more than you. And he understands temptation better than you understand it. Because he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. And yet in his temptation, think about this. You and I are tempted. We're tempted as sinful people to participate in sin. And yet he was tempted as God who is perfectly holy to participate with what is unholy. So in one sense, the sin or the temptation, rather, the temptation was more egregious, more horrifying. Because it was so unnatural perfectly God, holy. And so the temptations that he suffered are egregious in that the Holy One of God would even have to spend and share space with what was wicked. And so Christ came to die for that. Christ made us image bearers of himself and therefore evidence he must die. It's an obligation in a sense here. Uh, think of it as a financial obligation. Christ had an obligation to die for us because he made mankind to be in his image. And therefore, to honor his glory, he redeemed mankind. So that's why the incarnation is important. Christ becoming man while remaining God, 100% God, Yet 100% man, the incarnation brought about Christ becoming the great high priest. And that's really what verse 17 is talking about. He becomes this incredible high priest for us. The, the incarnation wasn't aimless. 
It didn't just uh, happen so that maybe he could save some of us. It had a very clear purpose of redeeming mankind. He didn't just come to earth to test things out, see how it went, maybe decide if he would be willing or want to offer. He came with the express idea, the express purpose of laying down his life for mankind. It goes even deeper than that because this word that we see a couple times here, aid, he aids us. The purpose was mercy, to feel a, a, a deep compassion towards the needy. And so in becoming the high priest for us, he's not only the priest, the one who makes the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. And he experiences deep pain in doing that. He understands, as I said, our struggles more deeply than we even understand them. He feels the pain that we cause. And yet, Hebrews 4.15, he pleads for us based on having the same experiences. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And in doing this, he exemplifies faithfulness. He enables us to be faithful as he demonstrates his faithfulness to his purpose. Completely reliable, he did not shy away from the cross. And this is one, one of the glorious truths when you finally realize it. The ramifications of this, what I just said, are extremely important. Jesus went to the cross. I will tell you this, I think the average person in, in, in our society does not think that Jesus went to the cross. They think he was captured, arrested, tortured, and put to death. That's not true. Jesus Christ set his face to Jerusalem. He chose to go into, uh, we could say, the lion's den. He, he, he chose to go to where those who wanted to crucify him were operating and had power. Not only that, he chose to have a conversation with Judas, telling Judas, I know what you're doing, go do it. He chose to stand in that garden that day and allow himself to be taken captive. We know this to be true because when they asked him, who are you? He said, Jesus the Christ. And all of a sudden, all the people fell back in glory. He allowed them to stand back up and bind his hands. There was no doubt who he was in that moment. He is God in the flesh. He chose to go to the cross. He chose to stay on the cross, even while they quote scripture against him. That if he is the son of God, that he has the power and authority, which he does, to call 10,000 angels down and fight for him. And he did. He did have the authority. He did have the power. But he didn't use it for himself. Because he suffered for you. And then, of course, he had the power to rise from the grave. It was his choice to suffer. Oh, I forgot the most important part. The final words that he spoke. It is finished. Complete. He's saying, I just completed redemption. And then he gave up the ghost. 
He was the willing sacrifice. He wasn't a good man that got captured, a wise teacher. He was the Lamb of God who laid down his life, offered himself for our sins. Why? Verse 17 tells us, so he could reconcile us to God. Jesus is superior because he did what no other priest could do. He offered a once-for-all sacrifice. He became the atonement, offering up the only perfectly pure and holy sacrifice once for all, accomplishing redemption. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He offered this propitiation. Actually, verse 17 alludes to this, says that uh, the, the latter part, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The construction of this statement's kind of unusual, to make propitiation with respect to the sins of the people. In other words, to make payment that would, that would perfectly suffice what God required. And he made that paid in full for mankind, to God. It was a direct payment to God for others. In fact, it's a direct payment that overpaid. Because his atonement was enough to pay for the sins of the world for all of time. All your sins. This is a hard truth. Uh, sometimes. I, I, um, I led a man to the Lord. 80, I think he was 84, if my mind remi reminds me. 84-year-old man, a railroad, railroad worker his whole life. A vile man. This was in Africa. He, he had slaves in modern-day uh, South Africa. Well, not modern anymore. Back 40 years ago. He, he was a, a, an egregious, horrible man. Mistreated people. And I, I sat in his living room with him, and repeatedly he, he told me in tears, I am too far gone. God cannot save me. I'm too wicked. You don't understand the things that I've done. And I had the wonderful truth of telling him, Christ, number one, already knows it. Knows everything you did. And he paid in full. More than you could ever do. It's bad theology to say, I'm too far gone. Because that makes God insufficient. He is overly sufficient. He more than paid for the sins of this world. And so he suffers. He makes atonement for you and I, a direct payment. And then lastly, he rescues the tempted. We, we saw the word aid multiple times used. He gives aid to those who are in need. And he, he says it again in uh, the end of verse 18. He is able to aid those who are tempted. He rescues. In other words, he rescues the tempted. The emphasis is on he himself. He suffered. He made atonement. He rescues. All of this was accomplished on the cross when Jesus died alone, abandoned, and in complete control. He suffers temptation. His temptations 
as I said, must have been worse in many ways, more abhorrent, more egregious, more offensive, because he is holy and without blemish. And yet, that temptation that he suffered makes him sympathetic for you and me. He understands the wicked pleasures of this world, not by participating in them, but by living among them. He understands better than us the deceitful practices of Satan, the lies that Satan breathes into our ears that we're tempted to believe. He understands them deeply. He sees more clearly than us the deplorable consequence of our surrender to temptation. He's walked with the downtrodden. He's heard the cries of the hopeless. He's seen people crushed in their own sins. comes to take them by the hand and lead them away from himself. That's the Savior. He understands what we need and he desires more than anyone to rescue the lost and the broken. His very heart is to run to the lost. His earnest desire is to lift up those who are crushed. He longs to bring safety to those who are afraid and alone. Jesus can help the tempted better than anyone because he took upon himself the form of a man, was tempted like you, yet without sin. And he has the power to overcome sin and death. This is Jesus the Christ. This is who we need to study more. This very nature is the one we need to know more intimately. He is the one who strengthens us. He is the one who fortifies our minds. He brings renewal, refreshment, compassion, health to our uncertain lives. This doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus makes our lives better in experience. It means he gives us eternal purpose. It means he gives us real value. It means he gives us spiritual success. That's why we gather, to worship him. So how does the truth that Jesus defeated Satan impact your life? That he crushed death to death. In Corinthians, we are told that we are more than conquerors. The term means over-conqueror. It means don't just win. Win emphatically. There's no question whether or not we win. But we don't win because of ourselves. We win because of our Savior. Because he is the one who paid in full all of our penalty. And so what does it mean then that Jesus sympathizes with you? This should be a glorious truth for us. Especially in the moments where we're struggling and we're uncertain and we're fearful. Christ is the victor. Can I ask you, do you know him today as your victor, your Savior? doesn't matter how deplorable, how wicked of a sinner you are, Christ paid it in full. If you today do not know Christ like that, you don't know him as your Savior, please, 
don't take another step out of this building without knowing Him. Knowing the one who provided redemption for you. If you're struggling in that way, it'll, it'll take, it'll pay, you'll have to pay a high cost. And here's the cost you have to pay. You have to humble yourself and admit that you're not good enough. To be honest, that's a hard cost to pay because it means we really are as wicked as the Bible says we are. And there's nothing we can do about it except fall at the feet of Jesus. If you've never done that, would you humble yourself in prayer before the Lord right now and just plead with Christ to forgive you of all of your sins for He is the one stands ready to make intercession for you because He made atonement for you. Would you humble yourself today before God and admit your need for, for Jesus to be your Savior? And in doing that, He'll take you by the hand and lead you away from the slavery of life that you inhabit. It is the only way of salvation. And I urge you to decide today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your goodness to us. Lord, every one of us stands here today equally deplorable, equally in need. The only difference is some of us may already know that you are our Redeemer. And so for those who have been led away by you, led by the hand to safety, I pray that in moments of weakness, when we are afraid, and when anxiety begins to overcome us, and when we're uncertain about the future or about what's going on, Lord, that we would come to you, our advocate, who would plead for us. When we fail you, when we once again plunge back into sin, when we wander back to the slave block, Lord, that you would be our advocate who reminds us you paid it in full. We thank you for your ministry to our hearts. I pray it would be very real to us this week as we walk in this sinful world and we are tempted in ways that you were tempted that, Lord, we would overcome temptation because you are in us. And we humbly submit to you. For those who are here today who do not know you as their Savior, Lord, I, I pray that they would humble themselves now. They would wait no longer. And just admit what they know and probably everyone around, around them already knows. That they need you. They need forgiveness. They need redemption when it's found only in you. Give them the courage to make that decision. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Help us to live more than conquerors, as overcomers, because you, Lord, have already overcome this world. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.